Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Reproducer. Hello, I'm Mark Jeeves. And I'm Jenny Nelson. Welcome to another edition of Reproducer, the podcast that tries to unpick a job that is sometimes just too tricky to nail down, that of the radio producer. In this series so far, we've spoken to some brilliant music radio producers, some talk radio producers, but in this episode, we are speaking to our first comedy radio producer, Ed Morrish. No one ever says, oh, I was a real comedy fan as a kid. I never missed an episode of Wogan. There's a difference between jokes and funny conversation. I got a phone call at quarter past six saying, where's, where's the show? I was like, I, I gave it to you like an hour ago. Now, Ed has spent most of his career working for BBC Radio as a comedy producer. He now runs his own production company, making comedy programmes for BBC Radio. And he's worked on some real staples of the Radio 4 comedy schedule, like the News Quiz, the Now Show, and since its inception, John Finnemore's Souvenir Programme. And other current projects include Rosie Holt's podcast, Non-Censored. Now, in this chat with Ed, we'll talk about his life as a producer for a radio comedy programme, including his surprisingly easy, by his own admission, way that he got into the job, about what a typical day would be when working on something like The Now Show, a national treasure, if you're a fan of it. And Ed gives us his thoughts on the differences between radio comedy and podcasts that live in the comedy genre. Uh, if you've ever listened to a radio comedy, it's a fascinating insight into that world. And we started by asking Ed how he would describe the role of a radio comedy producer. Read. Reproducer. Reproducer. So think of the comedy producer in radio as the person who is trusted with the production credit card. That's the easiest way because you don't um, – I've, I've told this story before, um, but uh, when I got my job as a trainee comedy producer, a trainee producer in BBC Radio Comedy, I phoned my mum and you know, told her I got this job and she went, oh – so you're going to be writing comedy? And I said, no, I, that, comedians do that. And went, oh, but you come up with the ideas. Well, well, no, normally it's the comedians. Right, so do you record it? Well, no, there are engineers that do that. But you edit it after? No, no, it's the same engineers or sometimes different ones. And my mum just sort of paused and went, 
so a comedy producer doesn't actually do anything. <laughs> it's not wrong enough to argue with, but I think you're sort of the person that has been entrusted to make sure it happens on time, to budget, to a high quality. So think of it as you're, you put the team together. I tend to generate my own ideas um, or you know have comedians come to me. Um, there are a lot of people who can ju- you know, ju- just get by making stuff that uh, other people have sold. But generally, I would say the role of the comedy producer is to identify talent, uh, translate their ideas into a saleable format for radio or saleable for podcasts or just a good idea for podcasts if you're making it independently. Um, put together the team that's going to make it, that's on the production side and on the uh, creative side, the writers, you know, getting the right cast for a sitcom, getting the right guests for a panel show. Uh, you're responsible for editing it afterwards. I'm pretty good at Pro Tools, so I would always do a first pass and then hand it to an engineer for a, for a mix. And know that the end product is going to be compliant for whichever network you're distributing it to so you're sort of responsible from beginning to end and i say you get the credit card and it's your job to spend only the money you've been given on the highest possible product sounds good that's a great description so what was your journey into radio in the first place and and what's your career path been i applied for a traineeship in BBC Light Entertainment, Radio Light Entertainment, with no experience in radio whatsoever, and got it. Brilliant. First go. What I did have, and I think what got me through the door, was I grew up listening to Radio 4 Comedy, um, not just of my own era, but my dad would play us tapes of The Goon Show uh, and Hitchhikers and Hancock and the Navy Lark. And Round the Horn uh, was a particular favourite. He also brought us when this weird um, news spoof called uh, On the Hour came out. He taped it off the radio so that we could hear it. Uh, you know, and then getting into the Radio 1 stuff, obviously you go from Leon Herring writing on uh, on the hour into the... And then things like Fist of Fun, but then they're on... Radio 1 at 9 o'clock on a Wednesday and so is Simon Munnery and so is Chris Morris and so is Armando Nucci. So it's sort of that um, background, just being an avid listener. I think I'm probably the last generation of producer that could get in without having made anything. Just I think I scared them with how much I knew about, you know, the Sunday format or something because it was just, oh, he knows everything about that, right? It'll probably be fine. Right. Um, I did. I did once ask John Pigeon, uh, the late John Pigeon, who gave me my first job. I said I did a couple of years in. I said to him, John, why did you give me the job? And he said, yes, it wasn't as reassuring as I'd hoped. He just went, well, it's always a bit of a gamble, isn't it? <laughs> that was it. That was all I got from him. Uh, yeah. Okay. But yeah, so it's uh, there's no struggle there. There's no um, I worked and worked and took internships. It, uh, it's a I'm aware it's a very boring story and speaks to an enormous amount of privilege, but also speaks to the fact that um, I got the job because I love the medium. Brilliant. I love radio comedy. Well, that's good. Okay, this is going to be a, probably a really obvious question. Why do you love radio comedy? What is it about radio comedy that works for you, perhaps more than TV comedy? Oh, I do love. TV comedy as well. Um, I am not sure I have the patience to make it. My experience of uh, going to 
TV shoots and everything, you know, spending a day on set of a sitcom and they get five minutes done and they're going, oh, that was a really good day. That was really productive. We've got over five minutes of footage. Uh, sitting there going, we record two hours of souvenir program a night. What are you talking about? Um, but obviously it's just a different mindset, a different uh, technical thing. I think what I've... I think the portability of it, the fact that you could listen to it anywhere, so the idea that you're not being tied to one place, so I'd go up into my room and listen to an old goon show or something on a cassette player. Um, I love I love the visual jokes you can do on radio. The type of joke, I think, is a lot sillier. I think it's all very um, uh, language-based, a lot of the jokes which appeals to me. There's, there was a show called Dan and Nick, The Bewilderbeast Years, they once did a whole sketch of uh, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader in a chip shop, and it was just fish puns for Star Wars that made absolute sense as a story. Um, you know, uh, use the source, Luke. Uh, they only have exotic fish, Luke. Take your father's place. It, yeah, it was really dumb, but it was just there's something gloriously inventive about what you can do with it. Um, and, you know, you listen to hitchhikers and like the the places they can go and completely convince you, you know, you completely buy it. And then when they did the TV version, they obviously didn't have the budget to make it work as well, you know, because, you know, the conning the audience that you're actually <laughs> on a spaceship on radio requires a couple of different sound effects. Doing it on TV requires a set and effects and, you know, lighting. And I think it's, yeah, so it's it's sort of the style of comedy. I don't, let's not, part of it is just what I'm used to. If that's what was getting played in the car while I was growing up, mm. if I grew up on Round the Horn, I'm going to like Milton Jones mm. because it's the same sort of shaggy dog story with a sort of befuddled main man wandering through cracking jokes. So I think it's... Uh, yeah, partly habit. There's nothing empirically superior about it. It's just what I happen to like. You mentioned John Pigeon. Are there any other individuals who've been real influences for you from a production point of view? Uh, I would say uh, Dave Tyler um, is much better than me. And if you can interview him, drop this and just talk to him. Uh, he's he's an actual. He does. He did um, Jeremy Hardy speaks for the nation. He did Cabin Pressure. Okay. He does does Milton Jones. Um, done a load of brilliant stuff. And I was very lucky to meet him very early on. Um, I went to a, the Radioactive Digital Turn on. They did their twenty fifth anniversary. Um, show and I met him there and he's since then sort of introduced myself and he's been very f kind and forthcoming with advice and counselling and critiques when needed um, he's just been a huge uh, support he's just a very good man who loves radio comedy as well um, uh, Dawn Ellis who produced the Shuttleworths she produced the Rapid Eye Movement so it was the first thing I heard with Martin Freeman and she was she was actually assigned to me when I started in radio comedy she was assigned to me as my mentor and so she was the person who literally talked me through this right you're making a show when is it going out right this is when you need to have it edited by so this is when you need to have it recorded by so this is when it needs to be written by so this is when it needs to be and just that back timing thing of you know it's all very well to get radio for tell you're going out in quarter three of 2024 uh, right, well, that means it could be going out on the 1st of September. 
And no one's around in August because everyone goes on holiday. So you need to have it edited by the end of July. So you need to have it recorded by the start. It's that sort of logistical thing. Yeah. And in terms of um, inspiration, she wasn't. She was in radio comedy when I started Radio Light End. Uh, Lucy Armitage, um, who doesn't produce anymore, unfortunately, uh, went into a different career path. But I knew her. I was like, I saw the name and she was around the office. And I said to her, are you the same Lucy Armitage that's credited uh, or thanked on the liner notes of Arnold's Hillside album? And she was like, I can't believe I've met someone who bought the Arnold album. And it's because she used to produce Peel. Um, and so she gave them their first session. And so it was like, thanks, John Peel and Lucy Armitage. Um, and what I learned from Lucy, especially, just there was no training when I started in radio comedy. There was no, well, there was Dawn and Elaine Wigley, who was a, a BA, who just sat all the training, the three trainees down and scared the shit out of us. <laughs> just like, do not treat your BAs like this. Do not treat them. Um, but, uh, but that was sort of, this is the logistics of it. But there was no sort of, it's quite funny. I was sent on a training course to learn how to direct radio drama or radio you know, sitcoms several years after I had been doing sitcoms. So I was like, oh, those are the mistakes I've been making. Um, but we were just sort of told, there's your desk, there's your phone, come back with some pitches, work out how to do it. Um, and so I was asking around, is anyone recording anything? I'm going to watch. And I watched Lucy record Paperback Hell, which Danny Robbins and Dan Tetzel's series. It was like spoof of uh, genre literature. I just remember watching her and thinking, because, you know, you're a new producer, there's a pile of scripts that have been sent into the department and you pick some up and you read them and you go, well, this is fine. I've heard worse. Should we put this forward? Because um, you, you haven't got the parameters yet to decide on what is, in my opinion, worth doing. And I remember watching Lucy at work and thinking, if I don't love it this much, I won't do it. That's the way she bounced around the studio and just got excited when someone came up with a better line or a better delivery. The way she cared about every single element of it. It was like, yeah, I could make that thing that was perfectly passable and had a little tick twice a page to indicate where the jokes were. But if you don't... And it's, it's the main reason I turn stuff down now is I get sent stuff and you just go, this is perfectly fine, but I don't love it. And it's hard to get on air. You need someone who loves it to keep pushing it because if they don't love it, they won't keep pushing it and then it won't happen. Mm. And you want producers who are invested in the work. And so I think, yeah, Dave, Dawn and uh, Lucy would be the three big influences. Great. And I mean, looking back at your career so far, and you've worked on so many different productions, and I'm sure you've loved them all. But is there a particular one that is you feel that you're most proud of? Uh, I, I think Souvenir Programme, John Finnemore's Souvenir Programme is the, I mean, I will never let that show go. John, John will have to fire me from it. <laughs> um, because I don't want anyone else to find out how easy it is to make. <laughs> uh, every single award it has won, every single accolade, every single good review is because of John's writing and the cast performance. Um, and it, it's John and his friends, and that could... You see shows where it's a little gang and it's a little bit self-indulgent, a little bit cliquey, mm. but I think John 
never wants to serve up substandard material knowing that the cast can make it work. He he wants he would want it to be able to be read out by Siri and still work. Um, and there's a, I mean, there's one sketch I remember rehearsing this sketch. I'd just come off an open door sketch show, which was fine. Like it, it was, the production was a bit fraught for various reasons. But what we ended up with was a solid, you know, three star, three and a half star sketch show um, with new writers. And the point of it was to get new writers on air, and we did that, and it was funny as well. We got some nice reviews, but it was, it was nothing special. And then we came, I came off that into souvenir program, and I remember rehearsing a sketch that would have walked into any episode of any other sketch show that year, including the Open Door one. Obviously, it would have walked into that, and I'd just come off this thing where we'd really been scrabbling around to make sure it was uh, decent. And we rehearsed it, and John just went, no, let's let's not do this. It's two things. It's it's not one thing. Yeah, I, I can do this better. I can do this better. And we've never done it again. It's just this missing sketch that would have, you know, he could have turned around by now but it's just he has higher standards yeah. than that um, and then because we can all see John working so hard the cast never want to let him down so the cast will never just coast by on a first reading they're like this is great material we've got to make it work and then if you're in that environment you can't be the dick not doing any work you can't be sat there just going oh it just happens so you have to constantly be like just having a word in the performer's ear, just going, you know, oh, leave a space for the audience there or try and hold that anger back and just constantly engaging with it so that when it's performed in front of the audience, it looks effortless. Mm. And I remember um, I used to share an office with a producer called Colin Anderson who now runs serious, XM, serious comedy stuff like Stitcher. Right. And he was making loads of stuff that I loved. I was always very envious that his shows seemed so easy. They just arrived complete. And it was like, man, I wish, I wish, like, I could have easy productions where you're not slogging away all night trying to get the first edit done before you go into the studio and where the cast... Don't, and then you realise, oh, it, he probably thinks the same thing about my shows. Right. Like, you listen to your own shows and you can hear shonky edits that no one else can hear, right? Because you're going, well, I know there's an edit there. There are people online who know Souvenir Programme better than I do because they've only heard one sketch a hundred times, whereas I've heard a hundred different versions of one sketch, and so I can't remember. Oh, was that left in? Or was that... Oh, we cut that line. Or no, that was on a different take. He used the different accent. And so you're constantly juggling different things in your head. All that said, you know, we do work hard on it, but Souvenir Program is as close as I will get to the show that feels to make the way other people's shows feel to hear. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. What we've asked other producers to do is to give us a typical day. And, of course, you, you can't really have a typical day when you're mm. doing what you're doing. So I thought it might be interesting to look at a show that people have um, listened to a lot, and that's The Now Show. Mm. And it'd be interesting if you could take us through that creative process. I note before when you were talking about how long it takes to get something on the air, they're talking about quarter three, 2024 or whatever. But with The Now Show, of course, it's a more immediate thing. So it'd be interesting to, to hear how that process is from sort of um, you know, here's some contributions to a broadcast. How, how would that work? Uh, so the now show, it, the guests are booked in advance of the series. Obviously, it's Punt and Dennis hosting. Mm. And when I was doing it, there was a regular cast of uh, Mitch Ben, John Holmes, Marcus Brigstock. So you'd start on Tuesday. Right. And you'd sit with uh, Steve, Pete, sorry, Steve and Hugh um, and the additional material writers, there's normally like three or four of them. Uh, and you literally pile the newspapers onto a table and start flicking through and start talking and saying, you know, what's the... It's not about individual stories, although you might start with a story, but you just go, what's the bigger point? What's the trend of the week? So if it was about... Uh, the week we're recording this, then it might have been about um, Lady Hussey, um, and then it get you could get into well, are there other stories about old people not quite getting what they're doing? But yeah, so you'll sit around and you'll end up going, well, this story and this story and this story go together, or this story contradicts this story, and that's interesting. And you'd work up sort of two segments: one fairly hard news, one sort of a bit more light, because they they were doing two sections in those days. I think they do one now, and then you would phone the other guests and go, right, the Stephen here are doing this and this and this. What are you doing? And then you get to leave it because Steve, uh, the, the the additional material writers will work up material that they will send either to you or to uh, normally to. Steve directly, who will then, because he sort of script edits that material. The, John Holmes, Marcus Brigstock would just be away writing their own bits, occasionally sending you, can I say this? And you'd have to phone a lawyer and say, can we describe this person as a tax dodger? Uh, no, because that's not nice. What if we said this? Yes, you can do that. And then on Thursday, scripts get finalised at about three o'clock in the afternoon. And is that is that you finalising them? Uh, yes, it's the producer has the final sign. Right. So Steve and all the contributors will have sent them. You'll have gone through it, given it to the broadcast assistant for formatting and, and printing. They'll print it out. You do a table read at five, a on mic. Um, you do that about half past six, and then the audience comes in at quarter to eight. You start at eight, and you aim to be off stage by about nine nine fifteen, and then then you go to the pub. And talk about it. So it's a, definitely a work meeting. Um, and then in the next morning to edit it all down. Uh, start. Up. Well, normally I used to edit the Now Show. I think I used Mark Wilcox, who's an in-house SM quite a lot, but I also used Jerry Peel. And they would often start at eight and just do the basic, here are the sections and mark it up so that, you know, in Pro Tools, uh, you could look at the screen and they'd have every section a different colour. So you had a sort of visual representation of 
wow, I've really cut down that bit. There's there's no more to lose from Marcus this week because he's already down to four and a half minutes or something like that. Whereas, oh, the opening monologue's still 10. I could probably get two minutes out of that. Um, and then you have to hand it in by six o'clock or the system doesn't work and a million and a half people don't get to hear the Now show. And that's six o'clock for broadcast at 6.30. Yeah. The latest I've ever handed anything in uh, was 6.20. <laughs> And those in the days when we delivered on tape, even though we edited on Sadie, we delivered on tape. Um, and I got a phone call at quarter past six saying, Where, where's, where's the show? I was like, I, I gave it to you like an hour ago. And they went, no, you didn't. So I went and found my broadcast assistant. And I was like, um, have you got this? She was it's the next thing I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> You've been waiting on that. That is cutting it close. That is, yeah. Do you think the future of radio comedy, audio comedy, is the future in podcasts? Or do you have more thoughts about what the future is of radio comedy as well as on in podcast form? I, th- I think it's that uh, podcast comedy now outnumbers traditional audio radio comedy. Because it used to be very expensive to make Radio comedy. Do you remember when Channel 4 had a go? Yeah. And they tried to make Channel 4 radio when they had a news quiz. They actually advertised, producing the news quiz, and they actually advertised, uh, like, it's a quiz about the news. Imagine that. And I was like, yeah, all right, lads. <laughs> I know you're being sarcastic, but come on. Like, um, But I think, so in those days that, uh, you know, the earlier something like the Collings and Heron podcast was unusual because there weren't that many people who would just, release something mm. um as the equipment has got easier in it i'm recording this on a samson q2u microphone mm. which cost me 80 pounds and was excellent quality as you know the equipment's got simpler and everyone's got audacity or something um the ability to make it uh has opened up and uh, i know a lot of people who um are now saying they would never try to pitch for a radio 4 series or a radio 2 series or anything because you know how long does it take to pitch? How long does it take to get the series? How many episodes would you get? You know, if you look at something like um, uh, Rob Beckett and Josh Whitcomb's Parenting Hell, uh, they started that in lockdown, and I think they did 150 episodes in the first year, 100 episodes in the first year. Just a volume that broadcasters that have to pay for their content couldn't afford yeah. to even... You know, especially if you're someone like Rob and Josh, who are both well-known comedians and can attract a, a, a lot of interest and in a large audience. Um, I think it's interesting. There's there's now, you know, commercial broadcasters that pay far better than uh, Radio Four have have far higher uh, budgets. But what I do think is, so my question is, is a lot of this comedy, or is it entertainment? Ah, and I do think there's a difference. Um, like, no one ever says, oh, I was a real comedy fan as a kid. I never missed an episode of Wogan. <laughs> like, I see. Wogan was a good show. I watched it a lot. But it was an interview show that was entertaining. It, it wasn't the same as what I was watching at the time, probably Ross Abbott's Madhouse. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a difference between jokes and funny conversation. And I think my... My slightly, I don't know if this is old man shouting at clouds sort of thing, but I think if people develop an expectation that audio comedy is 
two people, two comedians having a funny chat, perhaps with a weekly guest, different guest each week, then if you play them something like Hitchhikers or if you play them something like uh, Milton Jones or Cabin Pressure or Souvenir Program, it will sound so alien to them. Mm. They just won't be able to, you know, that that's that's not what this is. Um, I mean, it, which is not to knock any of the fantastic sort of indie dramas. There's a huge and thriving, um, creatively anyway, uh, indie drama scene where they're making, you know, fantastic programmes with great talent, great cast, and, you know, everyone seems to understand that's not chat. But if you look at the comedy charts, it feels weird to me that, you know, two people talking about a thing is up there with The Bugle, mm. which is, you know, one of the greatest comedians of his generation, Andy Zaltzman, and some of the, the funniest comedians on the planet, from Anna Van Palin, uh Mumbai to Alice Fraser in, I think she lives in Sydney, um, writing jokes and and trading them. But they're sort of, it's not pretending to be, oh, let's just have a chat about the week's news. They've put a lot of work into writing jokes. Um, And I feel like a lot of podcast criticism or radio criticism has decided that these uh, unscripted, entertaining chats which you know can be very funny but they're more natural and authentic and there's something shameful about the effort of getting on stage and trying to make people laugh but it's really hard to do that it is really hard to do that i have been around comedy long enough i've seen enough new talent nights to see a comedian who is someone try stand up for the first time and they are clearly the funniest person they know if they're in the pub you want to be sat at their table they are a delight to be with and then they try and tell those jokes to other people and it doesn't work because it's a different skill set you can't just be funny at a group of people and i think the the, the secret of podcasting um, or the, tr- the the thing about podcasting is you feel like you're eavesdropping. You feel like you're at the next table, right? So it's, oh, they're a really funny person. Radio is broadcasting, so it's you standing, shouting at a million people who are listening to Radio 4. And those are different skills. And I think uh, produced scripted comedy is getting its ass kicked, but uh, just numerically... And therefore, in the expectations of the audience. And I think you have to know what the expectations of the audience are. So I think podcasting is going to be the home of comedy, just because of the size of it, because of the, the low barriers to entry, the low barriers to success. Um, you know, you don't even need... Some people have been successful, and you listen to them, they're objectively terrible sound quality. Mm. But the audience like you, so they'll forgive you that. Mm. I suppose, as you say, it's about context. It's maybe we need to create that other word that is comedy, where it's two two mates having a chat. Chat casts. <laughs> yes. I think, yeah, no, no one wants to admit to being one. I mean, we're a bit more than a chat cast, really. What else do you do? Sometimes there are jingles. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I would imagine if you were giving advice to aspiring comedy producers, I would imagine, you know, trying out a podcast would be one way of them kind of building up a portfolio as it were but when it comes to pitching you've mentioned a few times about kind of commissioning and pitching it'd be really great to have your top tips for people who are new to that world who do want to work on radio comedy Mm. um what what are the skills or the the top tips you would share 
So I would say um, read the commissioning guidelines because everyone always says this is what we're after, but also look at what they do commission because it's not uncommon for a, a commissioner to say, we want brilliant diversity. We're all about diversity. Nothing more important to us than diversity. And then you look at what they commission and it turns out Famous people are more important than diversity. That's quite often across almost every medium, <laughs> radio, TV, podcasts, uh, everywhere, um, even live comedy. So look at what they commissioned because it gives you a sense for the sort of thing that works for them. It also could give you a sense for the sort of thing they don't have. And I think the secret to getting a commission is to offer something unique something they're not getting anywhere else. I was once working with a, a comedian, um, strictly speaking, comedian, but he said to me, oh, me and this other person, we've got this idea that we want to do together. Can we pitch it? And I was like, well, instead of the thing we're doing, this existing idea. And he was like, no, no, we'll do it as well. And, and I was like, but they've got an idea they want to do as well. If you're a commissioner and you're offered a standalone X series, a standalone Y series and a combined XY series, your brain just goes... Well, I can have those two in the same show and save myself a series for someone else. So by not pitching that thing, they both got series because the offers were unique. That said, sometimes it can be really worthwhile bundling up talent and saying, you know, so-and-so, you know, doesn't have the profile you would require for a show. But if we put them with this person... Or th and this person and this person suddenly that's a compelling package of talent and also allows them to go oh we're giving new talent a try um we're, we aren't we good we're discovering new people um and again they're not using up much airtime they're not using up as much budget if they have to pitch things um and then tonally like if they have cabin pressure don't pitch a sitcom about an airline or a train line or any other form of transport like that's just it sounds obvious, but I did once when I was producing a show called Dilemma with uh, Sue Perkins, which was mo basically the moral maze played for laughs, right? And uh, I did get a uh, someone submitted, I'm a big fan of your work. I have this idea for a panel show based around uh, morality. <laughs> it's like literally on air. It was literally going out on the day of the postmark on this <laughs> envelope. And my name is on the end of that show. So, I mean, yeah. It's the sort of thing I'm into, but on the other hand, can't help you. I'm busy. Um, and so, yeah, knowing why it's unique, knowing how it fits in, knowing what they have. You know, sometimes you get in there with, oh, this is the sort of thing they like. And sometimes you can get in with, oh, this is the sort of thing they don't have. Um, in terms of the actual pitch, the best advice I have is know everything about what you're doing. Don't go, oh, it'll be fine and we'll work it out later. Like know as much as possible when you go in i think one of the best pitches i ever did was for a paul sinha one-off called uh the sinha carter which was to tie in with the magna carter's um 800th anniversary and when i went in to pitch it it's going to be a one-off and we just come off the back of citizenship test so we'd done a couple of things for radio 4 but they were looking for things for this season i just went in and went mm, we should do uh magna carta paul sinha you know, what's in it, what's not in it, what should be in it, what shouldn't be in it, 
um, what what should we add? And, uh, and then <laughs> somebody said, have you read it? And it turns out I was the only person in the room who'd read Magna Carta. It's not long. It's seven pages of A4. It fits on. It's, it's not a long document. So you're able to go, oh, we're trapping in the Medway. That's a lot of Magna Carta is about we're trapping in the Medway. And then you have to go and look up what we're trapping is. And it's like, um, but knowing all that just made them go, oh, okay, so he's done the research, so this will be fine. One half hour, how bad could and we made it? It was, it was really good. Um, but I think knowing everything about your show, don't have them go, what's it about? And you go, well, it could be <sighs> about... The, no, just, no, no, why they have to have it and why they have to have it now. And why it's not like that other thing they think it's like, or if it is, how can you change it so it's not like that anymore? I think that's the, you know, they don't have to spend their money on anything. We always ask our guests to finish off with a, a moment that they could describe as either OMG or FFS in their career. I made a series called The Missing Hancocks, which was um, eight years ago now to coincide with the 60th anniversary of this this year is starting there are various episodes that have been missing or wiped in one case they found it um and been able to hear how good a job we've done but we recreated them exactly as written so we just took the scripts from golden simpson's archive read them out with kevin mcnally as uh hancock and um i was trying to get the sig tune Sort of very, and every recording had the announcements over it, and we had this idea that we were going to record our own credits, get Kevin Eldon who do the announcer voice, and I couldn't find a clean version. Then they've re-recorded in the eighties on synths. It sounded horrible, it caused me physical pain to listen to. Wah, 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 wah. Um, and then I thought, well, we're in the BBC, it was still it was pre-studio, so we've got three orchestras. I wonder if one of them could do it. And I phoned up the BBC Concert Orchestra. I said, um, could you record us the Hancock's Half Hour theme? Because the, the sheet music was in the archive, you know, um, Angela Morley's original sheet music. Why? Could, 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 how long would that take? I don't know anything about music. So how long would that take? And they were like, well, if it's that, and we showed them how long it was, and they went, well, it'll take them about an hour. So if you can get a tuba player, we could do it. But... You need to source a conductor, you need to source a tube player, you need to sort of this. Um, and also we'd need a fee. And at that point you go, this isn't going to happen because, you know, how much is an orchestra and I'm on a Radio 4 budget? <laughs> they said, I mean, we couldn't do it for less than £500. <laughs> I'll pay it myself if I do, that's <laughs> fine. And so being, sitting in Maidavale Studios 1 with an 80-piece orchestra and being able to just watch, sit there as... They played this just... They'd been rehearsing with Engelbert Humperdinck. <laughs> and then they went and had a cup of tea. And then they came back. Someone had changed the sheet music on their stands. And they are like, right, should we go? And just like that was the OMG moment. I was like, this is... like The first light end producer in must be 40 years to have a harp. Producer. I don't know if you ever get the chance to listen to those Hancock's half hour programs that ed was talking about there, talking about getting the music right for them but the production value that they put into making them sound just right just like they'd been recorded in the late 1950s and 1960s is extraordinary the sound design 
is brilliant. And it was really interesting to talk to Ed about a field that I've, I've listened to a lot of, but never actually got behind the skin of it or under the skin of it. It's brilliant to talk with him. Yeah, it's true. And I was really interested in what Ed had to say about the kind of stark differences between scripted comedy and what is also lumped in with comedy in the podcast world. Um, you know, the more people chatting in a room, bantering, I believe. Banter comedy. Yeah. Uh, but... I mean, there's room, surely. There's room for both and there's room for all. I'm probably more of a fan of the, um, we have to think of another name, not banter comedy, but um, <laughs> more <laughs> of the comedians <laughs> chatting. Um, but I find some scripted comedy just doesn't do it for me. But then obviously that's the brilliant thing about comedy is, you know, it's completely subjective. And, and what might make you crack up might leave me stony faced. <laughs> um, what's out of interest though, Mark, what are your if you were introducing someone to radio comedy, what would you point them in the direction of? Funnily enough, I'd point them in the direction of Round the Horn, uh, ah. which is, uh, you know, knocking on a bit now. But that was so far ahead of its time and its production value. I mean, people, if you go to the old stuff, people talk about The Goon Show, which was amazing in its own way and all of that. But Round the Horn uh, is, is almost contemporary. It's so, the things they talk about and the way they do things. There are some things which are garishly out of date, obviously. But there's lots of it that is it's really very modern production value. And the way it sounded, I thought it sounded great. Uh, the interaction with the audience was great. So I'd kind of go there. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, though, if you want something that's absolutely timeless. I'd go for more recent, but still not that recent, uh, down the line. I remember oh, when yeah. I first heard that, I was. Yeah. it was that real what am I listening to shock in a good way, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, absolutely love that and then listening to beef and dairy network on radio 4 was always just so surprising that they could get away with that surrealness mm. um, oh, claire, claire in the community by the way is a recent yes. one as well very good very good we could go on about this all day we could we could um and as well as chatting with ed about radio comedy production in this episode also in the series we have spoken to brian murphy about his role as the exec producer of the magic breakfast show liz barnes about her work with Radio 2 legend Johnny Walker and Rachel Barton on producing Radio 1's dance music shows with the likes of Annie Mac and Pete Tong. And all of those episodes and more are available in your usual podcast place. Reproducer. Reproducer. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.